This is Steve Thompson, and today we're going to read the last section of this book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 15 through 30. In those days I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way? I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us in our city? And now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way? Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I spoke sharply to them and said, What are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good deed also, O my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor, O my God. And this is how the book ends. This portion of our reading is divided into two sections, but it's purely two concluding points that combine with an entire set of responses that Ezra set off in motion back in chapter 8. So I want to comment on these two sections here at the end, but then I want to tie it all in together. So verses 15 through 22 deal with getting back to observing the Sabbath. 
This was a major piece of the covenant with God Most High, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If giving a minimum of 10% of one's income back to God for the sustenance of those who take care of the temple was an act of dependence on God to supply all their needs, then setting aside one day a week to cease from all labor that produces income and resting in God's presence and goodness was another blow to the root of self-sufficiency as well as a loud declaration that we are not the center of the universe. Our work is not our ultimate purpose. Our work does not provide our ultimate identity. Our identity and purpose are ultimately wrapped up in belonging to God, being his special creation, his special kids. So without spending hours on this important issue, let me just ask three questions that will help us reflect on this. Are you able to work with pride and purpose out of a sense of restedness? Or are you crashing into the weekend or crashing into a vacation just to catch your breath from running a rat race at breakneck speeds? Are you headed to work on Monday morning full of confidence in your identity and worth as God's dearly loved kid? Or are you driven to earn acceptance or respect or purpose through your accomplishments or by what you produce or your identity by how busy you are? The answers to these questions will tell you if you're living into the principle of Sabbath or if you're ignoring something that God has woven into the very DNA of humanity and the cosmos itself. Reflect on those things. But we can't stay there long. We're going to finish out with verses 23 through 31, and these deal with what it means to be a set-apart people with a unique purpose and mission that reflects the heart of God. This is not in any way an informative principle to be applied to our modern-day issues of immigration here in the United States in 2016. I would love to walk you through all of the passages in the Old Testament that should inform your attitudes, your actions, and even your voting when it comes to immigration in this country. And I think that you'd find plenty of challenge, no matter what side of the political spectrum you tend to fall within. As we've seen before in Nehemiah, God tends to side with the marginalized, the foreigner, the outsider, the voiceless, and he expects his people to do so as well. So I'll leave it at that. I just wanted that to be uh, known from the get-go, um, that this section is not how we are to view foreigners in our own country, okay? But jumping into the problem that Nehemiah was dealing with uh, in the people of Judea was faithfulness. This is the final issue in a string of issues that speak to Israel's willingness to finally uphold their end of the deal that they struck with God way back on Mount Sinai with Moses speaking on their behalf. 
even in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, all of the people again swore an oath to keep these laws. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 30, they said they would not intermarry. In verse 31, they said they would keep the Sabbath. And then from there on, there on through the rest of chapter 10, they said that they would tithe and do everything necessary to maintain the temple system. And now in chapter 13, as Dave mentioned yesterday, Nehemiah had gone back to his duties as cupbearer for Artaxerxes, and he comes back and finds out he's got to deal with these exact three things, but he does it in reverse order here. The Levites couldn't sustain themselves because the tithe wasn't being given, so they were having to go back to farming. The Sabbath was being broken, and people were marrying whoever they wanted. God prohibited getting married to the people groups that they were going to be moving in among because he knew it would lead their hearts away from him toward other gods. Nearly every time God prohibits intermarrying in the Old Testament, there is this rationale given. And we don't usually get a rationale with most of the laws given, but with this one we do. And the rationale was that, quote, your hearts will be led astray. And verse 26 here in chapter 13 emphasizes this. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over Israel, but even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. He knew it would happen, it did happen, and then people still didn't learn the lesson. So this is what the whole issue boils down to for them. They promised they would change everything and go back to observing the law, honoring their commit, com commitment to the covenant that they made with God. And then they proceeded to gradually just going back to their old habits, their old lives, their old way of doing things, just because that's the way they liked it. That's the way they're used to it. That's what they wanted to do. And you know what? We find ourselves facing the exact same temptation today. Now, while Jesus has fulfilled the obligations of the law and its requirements, and he's paid the penalty for our breaking our end of the deal repeatedly, he has invited us into a new covenant where God's law is written on our hearts, where we get to live according to the Spirit. And if you need this nutted out for you, just read all of Romans. <laughs> Uh, that could take you a while, but that's Paul's exposition of the good news and what it means for us. But today, this requires us to make some very difficult choices and to make some very definitive actions. What kind of common sense steps do you need to take to avoid temptations that pull you out of a God-centered and God-directed life? For me, I call this the get the Doritos out of the cupboard principle. If, on the one hand, I want to lose weight, and on the other hand, I know that I tend to eat an entire bag of Doritos all in one sitting, then in order to accomplish the first goal of losing weight, I merely need to take the Doritos out of the cupboard and refuse to buy more, right? It seems like a pretty easy correlation, uh, uh, philosophy, and, and response, action to take. You know that God has been asking you 
to give up certain lifestyle choices that are coming between you and him. You also know that God has invited you into some very specific lifestyle choices that will create a deeper and more dependent and more fulfilling relationship with him. So the question, as always, boils down to this one simple question. What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Father, we've seen you show up big time through this amazing leader, Nehemiah, who dared to chase after the dream that you gave him. And then when they saw you show up miraculously and in power and in cool ways, seeing this Jerusalem, the walls built back up in a record amount of time, they gave credit to you. They knew you were in it. And then Nehemiah, giving credit to you, and, in, and, and out of gratitude, did everything in his power to fight for a culture that was set apart for your purposes and to direct attention to you, to keep pointing to you, to keep giving you credit. God, that's what we want for us as a faith family for our culture to be seen as one that is different and set apart and unique and uniquely inspired, uniquely willing to sacrifice, uniquely powerful, not because of us and what we're doing, but because of how we've somehow created a culture that allows you to show up in power and allows you to do what you're longing to do in us and through us to change the culture around us. That's what we want. So Lord, give us the courage again today to say yes and then to follow through on that yes with maybe halting, maybe stumbling, but courageous acts of obedience. God, we give ourselves again to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.